So, so uh, in the blue, you have Nurse Fran. She has flown in today from New York City. And she is a nurse at Columbia. supports women and their families uh, when they're pregnant with a baby with a life-limiting condition. And we follow them through pregnancy, try to be at every delivery, as many as we can, and then we also do uh, bereavement follow-up for up to a year, um, both by phone with our, our social worker and I, myself, and our psychologist facilitate a monthly support group. So I am a nurse for 35 years. I was in the neonatal ICU, which is how I met Dr. Paravicini, who all of you need to meet. She is the, uh, the driving force behind our program and really created it um, because she wanted to know, or actually wanted to think about things from the baby's point of view. So I think that's one of the unique things about our program. So I'm Dominique, and I experienced my first unplanned pregnancy when I was 17, and then my second one when I was um, 21. And I placed my second um, son for adoption. Started off in fully closed, and now we are navigating, um, two, we're three years in, two and a half years, been navigating open adoption. Um, and so just get to have great opportunities like this ever since placing my second son and becoming a believer through that have just been able to um, kind of share this side of the story as a personal experience because we do get to hear a lot from um, the professionals and things like that but hey what does it look like to actually be like, walking through that and so um, yeah That's great. Um, so I'm Catherine Waldrop and um, back in the dark ages when I uh, went to medical school, I wanted to uh, become an OB-GYN because there were basically no females in OB-GYN. Mm -hmm. And that has obviously changed a lot. Uh, but at the time, uh, it was predominantly, a, well, it was completely a male-dominated field. And so I was actually the, um, in my class of 200, there were like 20 females. And then when I did my residency, uh, there were uh, two of us and the other one dropped out. And, uh, and then when I uh, started uh, my residency at Parkland in OB-GYN, uh, the male that was a, above me 
uh, came up to me and said, this is no place for a female with a child. Uh, you should turn around and leave. Yeah. And I said, well, I think I'll stay today if it's okay with you. <laughs> so I stayed that day and for another four years. But uh, I mean, I just really wanted to pave the way so that um, women would have a, an option uh, to not only pursue whatever career they wanted, but also to have an option for female providers. Uh, because I felt strongly that women understand women. Uh, and, um, and from that, that, you know, there's a lot that, has, that God has given me an opportunity uh, in my practice of taking care of women and taking care of, uh, of the unborn in that same field. So that's kind of my story. Great. Um, well, thank you all so much for being here for sharing a bit of uh, your story and what your uh, both professional and personal lives have, have uh, interacted with the pro-life movement. Um, Dr. Waldorf, I'd like to start by asking you, um, when a woman or a couple walks into your office, do you ever encounter those who are abortion-minded? How do you handle that conversation or navigate that, um, that, that conversation? conversation? Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, to begin with, um, I think that uh, I kind of um, think the best way to say this is we get a little heads up. Um, the heads up is that uh, usually the nurses or somebody will give me a heads up that uh, the people who are in that exam room uh, have an unplanned pregnancy. And when that happens, and I've told this story before, but when that happens, then I will um, call the troops together. And by that, I mean anybody uh, that works with me uh, knows who uh, uh, we, we, we're believers. I have other nurses uh, that work with me and people in my office. And all those of us that believe, we just go pray. Uh, because the Holy Spirit uh, is a lot more powerful than I am. And so we just pray. Uh, we pray that uh, the Holy Spirit will work on that couple's heart. And that I'll have the right words to say. And that uh, basically Satan gets out of that room and that God comes in that room. And so that by the time I walk in that room, um, God's in that room. And then God's a lot more powerful than I am. And that's really the way I perceive it. So when I go in, you know, sometimes things come out of my mouth that I don't even know why they're coming out of my mouth. I don't know if y'all have ever had that experience, but that's what God does. God, God just gives you the words to say, you know, and I'm just like, okay, I'm just the vessel. But, you know, God's great, and um, I can't even tell you the number of times that People come in thinking one thing, and then they leave with a different mindset. And um, sonograms are great things. Uh, if we can convince them that they want a sonogram, that's great. Uh, and then we just give them, you know, alternatives. But the alternatives that I give are, uh, abortion is not one of those alternatives. Now, if if they ask me about abortion, I mean, certainly as a, as a provider, I can't say that's not an alternative because they are obviously smart enough to know that's an alternative. But I just say that that's not something I provide. 
that's my simple answer. So that's kind of the way we handle that. Um, Fran, along the same lines, uh, how does the neonatal comfort care program uh, minister to women who are um, given their newborns or their children are given a life-limiting condition? Um, do you, how do you guys support them? And then also, Paul's saying we need to talk louder. Rock, he's saying, speak up. Great. He's, he's giving me that that motion back there. Speak, speak louder into the microphone. Perfect. Okay. Um, Frank, can you uh, elaborate a little bit on how you support uh, couples who receive a life-limiting diagnosis for their uh, child, and sure. also if you encounter those? I think that microphone might be distorting what you all are saying. Would you all agree with me? Perhaps you all can just speak without the mic. Is this loud enough? Is that loud enough? Okay, great. Well, in that case, <laughs> I'll turn that off. Even though my face, I'm happy. We'll yell at you. Okay. Can you hear us like this? Yes. yes. That's better? Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> so be it. Great. Okay. Can you talk you can about your program? <laughs> Just talk about so it. So most of our uh, families come to us as a referral. A diagnosis has been made at the anatomy scan, and they come to find out about what comfort care is. There have been a few Just families. Can, can you hear me? A few families that have been on the fence about what, what is comfort care. Sometimes comfort, you want me to stand? So sometimes uh, people think of comfort care as we're just going to give your baby drugs, we're going to give them morphine and you know, put the baby off to the side. That's not how our program works. So we have to explain, we have, we have to, explain it to the people that we work with first um, so that they can understand what actually we are trying to do. And I think if I was to put it in just one sentence, we want to celebrate life before death. Um, death will come to all of us, but how we die and with whom we die, we can influence. So if a family, I, I can think of one mother particularly who was struggling with her decision, and every time I saw her during her pregnancy, this was early in the pregnancy, she was crying and very sad. And finally, after like three visits, I said, Marie, you want to have this baby. You want to be a mother. You're struggling with the idea of abortion. I, I mean, that's why you're crying. Have this baby. And she had a very serious heart condition that um, was not amenable to surgery. And this baby is now four years old. So she will not live to be an adult, more than likely, but the joy that she's given this family in four years, no one can measure. So we follow the baby. Now there are times when we know most of, I would say the, the most common uh, type of problem we see are babies with trisomy 18. And even with those babies, sometimes they will not live to see the light of day. So how can I help a mom um, embrace that life within her while that life is within her, if that's the only time they may have? Or what are their priorities? What did they dream about doing with their children? So can we make that happen? Um, and how would we make that happen? How do they feel religiously and spiritually? And try to um, give them as much support as we can. How do you tell the other children that you may have? How do you tell a five-year-old? that their sister or brother may not come home. Well, we can help them with those things by either being with them when they do that or giving them the words to tell their children. And one of the things that I think is important is that, um, that my experience with some of the medical side of things is when they walk into our 
well, it's not our office, but we borrow offices <laughs> and share offices. But when they come in for a consult, we're like, we're here to welcome your baby. Congratulations. And they just look at you because everyone's been saying, well, you know, this baby has X, Y, or Z, you should terminate. They heard from the obstetrician, from the geneticist, even from the ultrasonographer. And we've had families that won't come back for prenatal care until after 24 weeks because they know that that discussion is ended. So it's trying to also teach our colleagues to hear, to, to really listen to what a family wants and what they're saying. No means no. And so to try to help communication between them, the families, and with us. We do some of the heavy lifting because, listen, these are hard conversations. So we can do it for them. And they're often very glad that we are. So that, over time, has gotten better and better. Is there a prevalence of programs like yours? No. <laughs> no, there are over 240 hospice, perinatal hospice programs, but we have, I think, the most comprehensive um, coming through the pregnancy and then our long-term follow-up. And the other thing is that we base our program is all about the baby's comfort. So what makes a baby comfortable? It's warmth, it's bonding, it's feeding if possible. Um, it's, it might be pain management, but many of these babies are not suffering from a painful condition, but we do talk about, let's say, um, a baby can go home for a period of time. And they'll call home with hospice. Hospice will have medication in the house, and I talk to them as a nurse about what does dying look like? Well, how will they know? And for them to also know that the medication is ordered for that baby's specific weight. We are not trying to end a life, but we are trying to alleviate suffering. So. A few years ago, we were having a discussion around a, a table of healthcare providers, and one of them was an ethicist and um, a very amazing guy. And I was talking to him about an adult situation I had, and he said to me, Fran, what was your intent? I said, my intent was to alleviate suffering. He said, then you're good. Yes, could it shorten someone's life to have morphine? Yes, but would it be better, better for them to have a longer life and suffer? No. So intent is really the issue. Okay, thank you. Um, Dominique, uh, could you share a little bit about um, your experience in both your first and second pregnancies and the relationships that you had with people around you and, mm -hmm. and what that did for you? Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I relationships are everything, especially in this conversation. I feel like often we're fighting, um, we're in an argument or we're fighting to win the fight. And it's not about that. Because if we all claim to be believers, right, then Jesus has already won. And death has been defeated. And so we don't have to carry the burden that we have to win this argument. And so what that is, is relationally, how are we going to pursue these women relationally? How are we going to care about their heart the way that the Lord has cared about their heart? And so what that looked like for me was in my first pregnancy, um, I just had me and my 16-year-old sisters, and we sat in the room together, and we made the decision that we would parent this little boy together. And so we didn't grow up in a household that we were really parented. Um, and my mom was um, had had six to eight abortions growing up, and so from a really young age. And so before she ever gave birth the first time, and so she was open to whatever I had decided. Um, 
And so I just had my 16-year-old little twin sisters helping me uh, navigate that, and they still do today. They're amazing. Um, and then, and I contemplated abortion with that pregnancy, um, but was more willing. The second um, unplanned pregnancy was when I was 21, and that I was abortion-minded from the moment I found out that I was pregnant. And um, from there, I the first um, conversation I had was reaching out to a woman at our church and just said, hey, is Jesus going to forgive me if I have an abortion? Like, do I, get a, do I still get a pass to heaven if this happens? <laughs> because I was not a believer, and I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Like, I knew the wording of that, but I didn't understand what that meant. And so um, that woman decided to have a really hard conversation with me. And we talk about it today and we laugh about it, but she was terrified to say, hey, like, you don't have to do this and you don't have to be alone in that. And for the first time, I thought, wow, like, you're crazy, first of all. Um, but you don't really know what you're getting into with me. You don't really understand my situation. How could you? Um, and she had to fight really hard for me to trust her. Um, and it took like five months before I actually like was like, hey, I'm committed to choosing life. And I'm not going to do that. And we're past the point of being that being an option. And so she... Um, from the beginning started the conversation of hey adoption is an option adoption is not an alternative to choosing life it's just an option once they choose life so you are having two separate conversations I just want to put that as an asterisk out there and um, because I feel like we put the weight on that that we are having one conversation and we're not um, so yeah so it was just really relationally people around my church have um, man have really just supported me and have supported the people supporting me. And there's people in this room who have done that and who have walked alongside me and my son's adoptive family so well. And it has taken an army of believers, y'all. Like, it's not lightly. It's not just getting the babies through the womb and that's that's the pro Oh, I'm pro-life because I saved this one baby's life. It's having a community of women who are going to babysit for me and set up an Excel spreadsheet, stay away from there. Literally, I have an accountant in my community. <laughs> she loves Excel. But it's like, hey, she was like, we're going to set up an Excel spreadsheet, and the Saturdays that you have to work, we're going to rotate out and babysit for you. And that is being pro-life. Because without a community of people surrounding me and relationally pursuing me and my sons, then I wouldn't be able to choose life. Because a lot of the conversation on my end is not whether I want to, but can I? And the I don't have the resources or the people or sometimes the emotional strength to even endure that. And I knew what that happened to me the first time. And I was like, I physically and emotionally will not be stable enough to continue to raise my first son. So this isn't an option of whether or not I want to bring this baby to term. It's whether or not I'm capable of doing so. And so I would just say, like, it is more than just, it's like walking through with women before, during, and way long after pregnancy. It's not just this easy one-off conversation that you're going to have one time. It's like, what can I do? I mean, I've been provided a car, free housing, and all of this is not just like a ministry at my church. It's just believers around me saying, 
hey, I'm willing. Like, I have an open back house. You can have it. It's people generously giving their time, their emotional capacity, and their energy to say, hey, we care about not only the life that you've already given us through this adoption with Everett, but we care about you and we care about your other son's life. And so that's how I think relationships are really important. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I just say something? Yeah. I want to share something yes. with you. Um, I also was a 17-year-old unwed mother, and I married the boy next door, the father of my baby, and we're going to be married 45 years this summer. Whoa. So, That's crazy. That's awesome. And again, um, I, Catholic school, Catholic high school, that did not go over well with the principal, although I have to say, they were the ones who stood for me, um, the, the nuns, my, my classmates, um, when I came back to school in my senior year, the pastor didn't want me to come back. Yeah. And the nuns went up and said, hey, mm -hmm. you know, she could have chosen an abortion. You never would have known. Yeah. How are we, you know, how are we supporting her? So I came back. I graduated with honors. Yeah. My husband went to work and school for six years. And then after he graduated, then I went to school. Awesome. Our son is 45, married with three girls, college graduate. That's awesome. So you've got a great you know. life ahead of you. Yes. Yes. Stay the course. Yes. Stay the course. I would say that's such a good point, too, to just add to that is that it is about raising our kids to be pro-life. Like this isn't a conversation you get into when you're 25 and 35. Like, hey, we have teenagers that are in these conversations with these women before they ever get to us. And so it's like, what if we're raising up our kids to just be for these women and not bully them into this abortion-minded decision? Because who wants to be the high school girl who got pregnant? Right? And so it's like, let's raise our daughters and our sons to be supportive of like, hey, I'm still going to be your friend and I'm still going to take you to prom nine months pregnant. <laughs> you know? And so what does that look like? Like, it's more than just this. Like, we could have a, we could have this room, but if you look at this room, I see like one young girl here. <laughs> Way to go, you. But I'm just like, hey, what about like, where are all the teens? You know? And it's like, we really need to invite them into this conversation. Good point. Yeah, really good point. Wow, thank you so much for sharing. Um, wow, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, maybe let's kind of like round that out a little bit. So you talked a lot about the relationships um, that helped you to helped you through your pregnancies and even a little bit beyond. How has it affected the way that you relate to people and like what you're doing now when you reach out to people you know, people who are helping you, or others? Yeah. Um, I think just, well, one, those relationships have navigated me becoming, God has used those relationships to show me who he is, and so now I am a believer. And so that has just gave me, just my relationship with the Lord has been able to give me an opportunity to be more empathetic to um to these conversations and be and to and vulnerable to sit in this room and not like these are the statistics and this is what's going to happen this is what you should do but just like hey what do you need what are you afraid of 
And that's just what people were able to do for me. And so I think that watching those relationships, how they affected me, I'm like, hey, okay, in turn, I can do this back, but I can even have a step forward in this race than they are because I can say I've been there. And this is really, really hard and it's okay to be scared. Um, so yeah, and I think that it's also just give, allowed me an opportunity. I mean, I meet with multiple Right now I have three or four women that I'm just communicating with through social media and through our church um, about choosing life. And then from there, typically the conversation goes into parenting or adoption. And so, Great. yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, in shifting back to our theme, which uh, we've been talking about, this convictions turn to action. Dr. Waldrop, can you talk a little bit about what it's like having a pro-life practice and if that... Um, how that affects your relationships professionally or when people walk in the door, do they know what, what to expect? Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people know, um, you know where I stand because I think uh, because of social media and websites and I think a lot of consumers are very well informed these days. So if you look at my website or research me at all, you probably get a pretty good idea of what you're getting into if you come see me <laughs> in my practice. Uh, it's, it's, it's not hidden. Uh, you know, they know I'm on Council for Life Advisory Board. They know I do Young Life. I mean, they, you know, so you, you kind of have to just stick your head in the sand if you came to see me and didn't have a clue of what I do. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think most of my patients are pretty well informed of the stance I take. And um, so, I mean, I don't think it has a, a, an adverse impact on my practice, if that's what you're asking. Um, and, I, you know, <clears throat> we were having this discussion earlier. Uh, not, not everybody in my practice thinks the same way I think. Okay. So I don't practice with all pro-life Practitioners, is that a good way to say it? Um, you know, so, and I, I, I kind of had this discussion um, earlier, I think, with Suzanne about how um, I don't, th I think as consumers, consumers need to be informed consumers. And I think I'm gonna stand up and say this. And, and you kind of touched on this a minute ago. Um, <clears throat> I can say this right. Uh, I think, you know, not, there are a lot of pro-life physicians out there. And so, you know, if somebody, I mean, I, I had a patient just recently whose um, baby uh, was not gonna be compatible with life. And, and she delivered and her baby lived for, or their baby lived for a few hours. Um, and at our hospital, I mean, I think we do a great job of um, preparing them for that. And uh, the nurses and uh, the um, uh, maternal fetal doctors. And I mean, we were all on board and we have good maternal fetal doctors that are on board and are pro-life. But, you know, you have to know who those people are. So if you choose to go to a physician 
if you yourself are pro-life, but then you choose to go to a physician who's not pro-life, then the response you're gonna get when you get a diagnosis that is, is a diagnosis that's not gonna be a, uh, a baby that may not be compatible with life for long term, then that's what you're gonna get. You know, but then if you go to a physician who is pro-life, then the response you're gonna get is gonna be different. I mean, I've never ever suggested that anybody terminate a pregnancy. So do you, do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah. So as an informed consumer, it's just like anything else you do, that has to be part of the mantra you use in picking your physicians. So um, I don't think we can throw all healthcare providers under the bus when we say, well, you know, I, they don't know, uh, you know, how to manage this because that's not a true statement. There are a lot of pro-life physicians out there who would never, uh, I think, say anything other than we're going to help you navigate this well and congratulations that you're pregnant mm -hmm. and, you know, this uh, baby is going to be cherished for any length of time that you have this baby and that may be only 30 weeks in utero, it may be two hours after birth, it may be four days, who knows? But none of us know how long we're gonna live, right? None of us know. So anyway, I mean, that's just kind of my thing. I, I think that, you know, we all have to be informed consumers and I think most of the people that come to me are very informed because I make it very clear that this is where I stand and so, you know, and then I make it pretty clear on everything else I do too. So <laughs> if you don't like me, you're you're pretty much out, right? And patients that are here, they're like, yep, she's pretty clear, pretty much black and white. And you know, they come and they don't like it, they're gone pretty quickly. So that's kind of the way it is. So there you go. <laughs> No, but I'm going to get that up and going. <laughs> that is my next thing that I'm going to do is we are going to have a, a website that is, you know, whether we hook it to the Council for Life or something, we're going to have a, something that says these are pro-life doctors so that it's very clear who is pro-life We will do that. But we need one that's really Dallas-based, you know, that's real clear that this is where we are, yeah. Was it challenging to set that expectation in your office initially? Was it difficult to say, okay, here's, here's where I stand. Did you experience pushback from either staff that you hired or like early patients that came in? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I mean, my partners know this is where I stand and I know this is where they stand. and. I mean, we don't really, you know, this is, it's kind of like, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat or whatever, it's like, okay, this is their stance and this is where I stand and so be it. That's it. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Fran, when you're talking about the neonatal comfort care program with other physicians, um, what's the response like? So I think it depends on who you're talking to. 
Um, I think the challenge in New York is, um, and in, in Columbia particularly, is we are a very secular organization. Right? There is no way around that. And so um, the beauty of Dr. Pavicini is she would rather ask forgiveness than permission. <laughs> so, and in a large bureaucratic uh, operation, it's often better to start doing something and prove that you can do it rather than ask if you can do it. That's right. And so that has always been, she's Italian, so that's the other part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she just went forward with an idea of how can I help these babies, how can I help these families. What I think has been the most beneficial is that we do it. So in acting on what we say we're going to do, I think we've taken some of the uh, heavy lifting off of some of the other providers, but also shown them, oh, well, they, they really can do this. This really can be an option for families. So over the years, I think the first year that Dr. Paravicini did this, she got 13 referrals. Now we get 125. So you can see that, and again, we, we're kind of under the radar, if you, if you must know, in the sense that we can't stand as a pro-life, but we are life. We're for women who want this choice. We offer them a choice that um, they should be able to have. Just like we offer different surgeries, it's a yay or a nay. Um, so I think in that sense we have really made a lot of inroads and changed people's um, perception and also the fear. I mean when you're talking about comforting a family whose baby is actively dying. It's tough to stand there. But nurses and doctors um, can do it, should do it, and I try to show them how to do it. The other thing that I love about Dr. Paracini is that she takes the bull by the horns and she does what she's gonna do. So a few <coughs> weeks ago we had twins born. The little girl had a very severe cardiac defect and they were born at 32 weeks, so she was too small physically to have this surgery. Her brother was fine. So her brother went to the NICU because he was premature and he needed a little help, and he's a boy, no offense to the man. <laughs> um, but they do usually need a little more help, and the girl stayed with mommy the whole time. And she was doing skin to skin, it was beautiful. So we wanted to bring the boy up to see her. Now, it's a different floor, and it's different nurses, and so Dr. Paravicini said, well, I'm the doctor. I will take this baby myself. And she has an Italian accent, so that's what <laughs> So she, you know, we wrapped this baby up. He's in his isolate, and I can't tell you how many people were like, I don't know if you can do that. Wait, we got to check. We're like, wait a minute. We're physicians and nurses. We're in the same building as the ICU. We're walking this baby. He's not attached to a respirator. We can do this. And when I tell you there had to be 20 people in that room watching all the relatives, watching this mother and father in the bed, each of them holding their baby skin to skin, not a dry eye in the house, including our own. If you're going to tell me that I have to follow the rules and not let that happen, no. No. So that's why I follow her. <laughs> she's the doctor. Yeah, she's, she's the doctor. And, you know, it's this sense of She's very clear about what is right and what God wants for all of us. And um, the idea that a natural life and a natural death are okay. That we can stand with these families because no one's suffering more than them. 
um, and need to stand with them and need to be able to hold them, literally sometimes, um, at that most incredible moment. And I will tell you, having witnessed babies um, die, it is a sacred moment, just like birth. A different place, without a doubt, but no less sacred and no less important. So, you know, again, it's about the relationships. Can we build relationships with our families, but also with each other as staff? If they know I'm gonna show up, oh, Fran, so glad to see you. Great, let me show you what I want you to do with this family. Because we can't be there 24 seven, although for Dr. Paravicini it's close. <laughs> but you know, we, we will three o'clock in the morning not necessarily be there on a weekend or on a holiday. So how do we teach the rest of our, our staff to, to know what to do? What does it look like when someone's referred to you? What does the process look like from that moment until the child is born and in however amount, whatever amount of time that child has? So we do a consult. It'll be myself, Dr. Paravicini, and our social worker. Dr. Paravicini will ask the family to tell her what they know about their baby's condition. And then she will talk to them about all possible scenarios. So um, what would we do if the baby only lives in utero? Um, what would we do at birth? Does this baby need anything specific done? Do we need genetic testing done prenatally or postnatally? Um, and then I step in and talk about the, the practical issues about you know, bringing clothing and how do we talk to the kids, creating a birth plan, and our social worker also adds on to that and helps them to um, deal with the emotional stress and anxiety and then plan for another, another meeting because this is not a conversation that can be done in one meeting. It has to be over time. And also the, the commitment. So again, medicine and nursing are as much art as science. And so it's, it's I mean, I went into nursing because I wanted to physically touch people. I, yes, I wanted, everybody who goes into healthcare so they wanna help people, that's great. So do teachers and social workers. But I wanted to get my hands dirty and so being able to hold someone, to, and literally um, hold someone or help to heal them is, is very powerful. And you know, very, absolutely my calling. I believe that God called me to this, without a doubt. Um, my second night of orientation as an adult med surge nurse, my patient died of a brain tumor. And she was a do not resuscitate, we knew she was gonna die, and my, my preceptor, kind of trying to lighten the, the moment, said, gee, Fran, I hope this isn't an indication of how your career is going to go. But it was. <laughs> I was like, well, you know. Um, and I do feel that um, over, one of the things I loved about the NICU was the, the time that I could establish a relationship. Mm -hmm. When you have a preemie that's going to be with you for three, four, five months, you get to know people. But being able to help a family become a family, to empower a mother to hold her child, to learn how to feed her child, take its temperature, uh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it's all about the relationships. Um, you, know, you need to know, and I think you certainly do, um, Dr. Waldrop, that not all of our patients will be okay. And, you know, sometimes tragedy happens. So how can I stand in that moment with them? even when the best thing doesn't happen. And honor their baby and honor their, their child's legacy. Because all of these children, in many ways, we have no idea how these babies will touch the lives of others. Your children, your experience, how you now have changed your life, 
how other people view the, the families and find strength in them, they may turn around to be the counselors for another family in the same place. So the, it's a ripple effect, and, and sometimes you'll never know how your child has impacted the world in a positive, beautiful way, but they do, every one of them, every one of them. Um, before we open it up to questions, um, I was wondering if each of you could give just like a, a tip or a, a slice of wisdom on how it is that we can bring this pro-life uh, movement into our day-to-day -day lives. How is it that we can have that life conversation, whether we are working in the pro-life um, movement directly through our work or our volunteering or in our day-to-day -day at work or with our families? <laughs> Well, it's not easy, and I think, I think what I love that you've said, Dominique, is it's a conversation. Um, it's, again, listening to what someone is, is struggling with. When you're, you know, any age, if you have no money, no place to live, you're an illegal immigrant, or you're uneducated, or unskilled, and you have children already, or this is your first pregnancy, and maybe you're pregnant with a baby with any kind of uh, number of, of issues, the idea of a, of a pregnancy and bringing this child into the world is really hard. Yeah. I don't think there are many women in the world who walk to the abortion clinic like they're going to the store. Mm -hmm. But we've, we've gotten so angry on each side, mm -hmm. and we're so hell-bent on, as you yeah. said, winning the conversation that we've stopped having it. And really, I think in my work, it's about an invitation. We're inviting you to, to come with us. We will fo follow you on this journey, and we're willing to be with you on that journey. We want to be with you, accompany you on that journey. Um, and so I think, you know, when people find out what I do, I've stopped many dinner conversations <laughs> because people will say, you picked that work? And I'm like, yes, I love this work. You love that work. Aren't you crying all the time? No, actually I am not. Um, I feel incredibly blessed and I'm blessed by the families that I serve because they are incredible. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that as many times as we cry in consults, we will laugh in consults also. And when babies are born, you know, who do they look like? Oh, this, he's got an attitude like that one, and this and the other thing. You know, you can't believe the things that come up. Or, you know, even in planning funeral arrangements, I've had mothers be very meticulous. I'm like, what do you do for a living? I, I, one mother said to me, I'm an event planner. And I said, well, yes, I, I see that now. It's very clear to me. So, but if I hadn't had that conversation with her, I would never have known. But I, you know, it, again, so it's the idea of, of, of connecting with someone on a, on a basis as a human being, as God's creature, because they are struggling. And how can we, how can we help them? Yeah. So um, I would say to that is, um, like I said before, like being pro-life isn't just about getting the baby through the womb. Right? <coughs> and so, what does it mean to be pro-life in your in your everyday life? Effectively, I think is the key word there. And I think that to put it like this, and. Are me and my son, Easton, who will be seven next month, which is insane, are we 
not of value if I, or not as of value of all of the needs that have been met for us if I didn't end up in a second unplanned pregnancy. Like you may not, you may work in a place where you're not gonna run across women or you may live in a part of town where you're not gonna run across women who are facing unplanned pregnancies, but you will at the grocery store see maybe a single mother struggling. And it's like, how can you serve her? Because she already chose life. And so that's being pro-life. Again, going back to the before, during, and after. And it's just like in our relationships when we're sharing the gospel with people, like, hey, sometimes you're not going to be the person who waters that seed. Sometimes you're just going to be the planter. And then sometimes you're going to be the person who gets to experience the people, the, the growth from the people who did water and plant that seed. And so it's like continuing that. So what can you do in your everyday life effectively? It's like you, it's not really super complicated or super hard and don't feel this weightiness of feeling like I'm going to have to go out and just yell at the top of my lungs that I'm pro-life. Like that's not realistic. And for like women who are, or men who are teachers, like they can't talk about that stuff in school. And so it's just caring like what God calls us to do. It's just to care for our neighbor. And it's like, be there for people, emotionally connect with people. And so quickly you will find that it's not even just someone that you may know already, but someone that they know. And then the connection starts from there. And the last thing I'm gonna add is, if you know Allie Wall, that's my son's adoptive mom. If you know her, she's in my head right now telling me to go back on something I said earlier. So she's a perfectionist, but she is in my head and keeps yelling at me. So I just want to go back. Also, when I share some of my story, the Lord has moved mountains for me. And he has used people to do that um, by giving me free housing and a car and things like that, right? Don't go out and just give a free car to the next person that you see and be like, I'm pro-life. I did it. She said it. I did it. It was okay. Don't do that. So Allie's always like, be super careful with how you share a story. And I'm like, okay. So that's not being pro-life is the fact that I got a car. It was that somebody was just like, hey, I'm able to do this. And for some of you, it's not going to be a car. It's going to be, hey, I'm able to take you to the grocery store. Or, hey, I'm going to grab, get on Instacart and I'm going to order you $50 worth of groceries. Or, And sometimes it's not an immediate need of like, for me, like, I cannot financially support anybody else right now. It's just me and my son, and that's who I'm supporting. But I can still walk alongside these women. For one woman right now, it looked like me inviting her to a game night we had. Her Getting her out of the environment of friends that are encouraging her decision to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, Christians are fun, even though we look weird sometimes and there won't be alcohol there will be but not a lot of it but you you know you know so I'm like hey you can just come hang out with us and I promise you I used to think no that's weird I'm not gonna go hang out with them I think getting drunk is more fun but it's like hey we still go out and we still have fun and so it's like gaining those relationships and so for me I can't provide financially but I can in other ways and so I mean I think that you know, summed it up. I think it's all, you know, what you can do is, is relational. Uh, you can't go beat anybody over the head with it. And, you know, I think uh, being argumentative does not win any points with anybody. 
So I don't think we're going to gain anything ever by being argumentative. I'm, that's not the point. Uh, I think loving on people and establishing those relationships uh, is our best mantra. Uh, and the more we can do that, the better off we're all going to be. Uh, and certainly shaming people is not going to gain us anything. So I am totally uh, not ever in that ballpark of trying to shame anybody. I'm just trying to provide options and love on people. So establishing those relationships, loving on them, and then you know trying to give them positive options uh, is your probably best, uh, you know, the best we can do. And and then I pray a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Pray, she does pray, it. It's fine. <laughs> we'll cry for you, friend. And then praying, praying a lot. Great. Well, thank you so much. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you.